Okay, we'll go ahead and get started in what I thought we would do. And well, you you know that is how I wrote the book, talking to people like you. Okay, well, mm. let's keep talking. Hello, I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm really excited to visit with a pretty new friend of mine, Greg Sattel. Greg is an author of today. The book we're going to talk about is his newest one, Cascades, and he's also the author of Mapping Innovation. He's got a blog that he writes and posts to LinkedIn with a lot of really good information on there, I've discovered. And an interesting background in history, and I think you'll enjoy the discussion today. Welcome, Greg. So happy to be here. Thanks for for inviting me in, Annette. You bet. Excited to have you here. So just to let the listeners know, you and I met because you came to do some training for Amarillo College, the the kind of top-level leadership, and I'm on the board of that. And so I was flying back from somewhere and ended up flying to El Paso to meet you and our friend Todd McLeese. And so we rode together. So you had time to converse. And I. Yeah, just, by the uh, way, that was the craziest trip because <laughs> all of our planes were delayed a number of different times in a number of different ways. And then we all landed within seven minutes of each other. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out. It just worked out. <laughs> it just worked out. <laughs> and then we drove to the, the place we were having the training in Riodosa and a, a beautiful location. And uh, then I got to listen to you and and Todd and, and team work through the training. We'll kind of talk about some of that later. But tell the listeners about you and your background. Who is Greg? Well, Greg is a long story. Uh, but but, uh, I guess I would start when I was 27 and somebody offered me a job in Warsaw, Poland to sell ad space. And I figured I I had a corporate job. I I was selling uh, ad space for national radio. And I said to myself, well, I'll go. I'll go and do that for six months because, you know, I was a athlete in college and never got to do a, a semester abroad. And I figure if I don't do something like this now, I'll, I'll never do it. And next thing you knew, six months turned into 15 years. And I ended up living in four different countries. And in 2004, I was running a major news organization in Kiev, Ukraine, during the Orange Revolution. And I was just amazed how, and especially looking back from the perspective of now, because that's when it all started. That's when Russia and Ukraine began to diverge. But it was, and I, I talk about this in the book, about how it was as if the entire country had changed overnight. And I was, I was amazed by a number of different things. First of all, how nobody with any conventional form of power seemed to have any ability at all to shape events. There was just this mysterious force that nobody could really describe, but nobody could deny that was moving things along. And I was amazed at how thousands upon thousands of people who would ordinarily 
be doing very, very different things would all of a sudden stop what they were doing and start doing the same thing in nearly perfect unison. They have to remember, I was I was leading a fairly large organization at the time. And I was thinking to myself, selfishly, of course, <laughs> you know, I'd really like to, I'd like, I'd like to be able to bottle that force, right? Because here I was running a big company and I had thousands upon thousands of, of uh, you know, potential customers all buying different things. And I wanted them to all buy the same thing that I happen to be trying to sell them. And you've run organizations, I know, and you, there's, you know, you work with a lot of, especially young, but ambitious, really enthusiastic and intelligent people who are all bursting with their own ideas. But I needed them to focus on the one or two prior, you know, think, initiatives that I thought needed to be priorities. So this whole idea of having, you know, everybody focus on one thing all at once, like a wave at a stadium or like like how people line up at an Apple store or how they used to line up for like a hit movie. Um, I, I thought that sort of stuck in my mind that that was an that would be an amazingly useful thing to be able to do. Two years later, I was in Silicon Valley doing a, a publishing course at Stanford. And everybody was talking about social networks because, of course, now it's 2006. And we had a large digital business. So I thought this is something I should really learn about. That's what got me started researching network science. And lo and behold, I found an almost perfect mathematical model for everything that happened or just about everything that happened during the Orange Revolution. And that's what got me hooked. Wow. So you you were in, in Ukraine in Kiev during the Orange Revolution. And I was running a major news organization. Yeah. So I had to not only make business decisions, but but the editorial wasn't under me. I was running the business side of it. But, you know, we had to make a lot of decisions. We um, and, and we had sort of like the Time magazine of Ukraine. And we became it was a very interesting time because people were still debating the value of a free and independent press. And they said, nobody can be unbiased. I mean, that was still very much a conversation. Interestingly enough, Moscow at the time had a vibrant press, but it had it, it had been it, it, it was in the process of being dismantled. Now, of course, Russia has no free press. Um, they did before the war still have a little bit. Now they have not. And Ukraine, of course, is an incredibly vibrant free press. So that was the when the Orange Revolution broke out, that was also something that happened. People said, you know what? They were right. Like there is a value to independent information, independent press. Uh, there's there's a value to journalism. And, and so that was really exciting. But also, 
created a real feeling of responsibility. Here we were, all now all of a sudden, everybody wants to believe in us, and we had to get it right. Wow. And do you still have news interest in news business there other than having friends there? No, no. I mean, I, I hadn't founded the company. The founder of the company and, and the owner of the company, I had some shares eventually when it went public. And that's a whole nother story. Yeah, but yeah. I, I don't I am. And, and of course, there, uh, as with many things in Eastern Europe, it's quite complicated because the correspond we we ended up selling the business to a guy named Petro Poroshenko, and he ended up being forced to sell the business to a cutout for the Yanukovych regime. And then after the next revolution, um, Petro Poroshenko, of course, became president of Ukraine. So it was all mixed in and and but when that happened, the Russians got control of Correspondent. Now, all the editorial team, the whole team at, at Correspondent, is now publishing something else called Novi Vremenia, which is really what Correspondent was. We also had the Kiev Post, which something along similar lines, and now the Kiev Post is Kiev Independent. So those are all... <laughs> Well, and and all that's in your book in in Cascades, or a lot of that's in not your... some of it, but yeah. But it, this latest in iteration is is interesting, especially since Kiev Independent is is a key news source yeah. for the West. But what's interesting is how the traditions hold over with Novo Ivremenia, That culture that is the car correspondent culture and those are the correspondent people the core team from 20 years ago and with kiev post they were all the, we hired an editor brian bonner in i want to say 2006 or so and he just he just left. I mean, he got fired or, or something. There, there's a whole mess. I don't e exactly know what happened. But that whole staff, they were trained wholly by Brian Bonner. So there's that continuity. And I'll tell you an, another story. It doesn't have much to do with this, uh, with I think your intended subject. That's okay. It's an, it's an amazing story. So the guy who started Kiev Post was a guy named Jed Sundin. Uh, I would come to Ukraine in 2002 on another project, which, of course, has all sorts of connections, which we won't go into because you won't be able to understand the story. But as <laughs> as Eastern Europe is, there's everything is mixed up with everything else. But I met him in in that initial thing, and that's when he was getting correspondent started. But in 2000, when he. And remember, this was after the ruble crisis. Everything was really down. He, 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 he went on a business trip, and he was on his way back. He was denied uh, entry to the country. He was declared persona non grata, and just by coincidence, you know, because I'm sure they had this in the works for weeks, if not months. But it just turned out when he took the business trip 
And when he came back, Madeleine Albright was supposed to land in Kiev in like two days. Like an amazing, you couldn't have planned it better, like an amazing thing. And he had a friend of a friend who was on Madeleine Albright's staff. Word got out to her. She sent, she sent word to the Ukrainians, like, hey, uh, of course the secretary can't come to Kiev when you're barring American journalists to the country, from the country, which wasn't exactly, <laughs> but, but close enough. But, <laughs> and Kuchma, there was late, he was later heard on the Kuchma tape saying, why, why did you have to do that? Why, why'd you have to screw with, you know, why didn't you just raise his rent or something? But the, you can, so you can imagine, uh, the next morning, he he like spent the night in the airport like that Tom Hanks movie. And then in the morning, they let him in. So it ended up being, you know, just kind of a funny little incident with huge repercussions for us and for the country, even though I wasn't involved with the con company yet. Because things happened the way they did. And because you have to remember, people growing up in the Soviet Union, were, especially people in the security services, were trained to see the CIA around every rock and every tree behind, you know. Every... So because things happened the way things happened, people thought we had connections we didn't have. And you've met me in person, you know, a big, you know, you know, a big guy with, with, you know, uh, with a crew cut, people just assume you're CIA anyway. <laughs> so because of that, we were considered off limits and not, and if that hadn't happened, we, we probably could, Jed probably couldn't have made the leap or it would have been much, much harder to go from Kiev post in English to correspondent in Russian, which became a huge symbol of the Orange Revolution. And we were, and if that hadn't happened, we played a large role training, you know, hundreds of the country's top journalists came through Kiev Post and Correspondent just because they chose to declare him persona non grata two days before Madeleine Albright was supposed to come in the country. Wow, that's a great story, um, and we'll, we'll come back to 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 Ukraine and such because that partly that helped you kind of think through what then became your you know book cascades and 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 the processes that you outline in there on what creates real transformational change that sticks, and you have some great examples of that, and then things that don't stick. You know, so I'm I'm talking well, about the poor versus Occupy Wall Street right. examples like that. So the my experience in the Orange Revolution that's what got me hooked researching it, and then later I started my blog and I started writing myself and start and the blog got picked up in places like Forbes and Harvard Business Review, and that's how I met my friend Sir Ja, 
who really invented the the color revolutions and run something called and it is really like a professional revolutionary and and probably the world's most successful uh modern revolutionary he he runs something called the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies. And in the show notes, you can you can put the website where they actually have manuals for how to do this stuff. So he's built this repeatable model for creating a movement, creating a revolution in, you know, in places and in places like Serbia and Georgia and Ukraine and Zimbabwe. I mean, they've been active in over 50 countries. And so that's that's where I actually learned the principles. I learned the science of, of a cascade, but it was from Sir Jai, I learned the principles. And then cascades is really um, applying those principles to an organizational or corporate or institutional setting. So let's talk about what a cascade is. And I'll just, I'll, just, I'll back up a little bit just to for the listeners to understand you're not in Kiev you're in Philly right yeah okay so so now you're back in the states living here but but my wife's whole family's in in Kiev well i hope they're all safe they're doing doing okay yes thanks oh wow okay so what is a cascade or what do you mean by that a cascade is just viral activity in a system so a wave at a stadium um an internet rumor um uh, a uh, a you know dominoes effect uh but that is cast uh, those things are all uh examples of cascades there's also um uh interesting think cascades in nature that they didn't realize that were cascades so the way certain fireflies can coordinate their blinking or bullfrogs or crickets coordinate their chirping or their whatever bullfrogs do. So we see these things all throughout nature. And when you see all of a sudden people flooding the streets of Kiev or Cairo or Washington, D.C., scientifically, that really is a cascade. And what what's super interesting, though, because we've known scientists have known about that this concept of a cascade or that mysterious force that I felt on the streets of Kiev, they've known about it for centuries, literally. But it was only in the late 90s that we learned the mechanics of how they work. And the shorthand that I was able to come up for it, which is pretty scientifically accurate, but 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 very easy to understand, is small groups loosely connected but united by a shared purpose. So when you actually want to create a movement, people like to think of a movement like a big march, like a big crowd, but that's not what it is. It's a bunch of small groups connected to each other. And that's why I think the wave at a stadium is such a great example. Because if you think about how a wave at a stadium happens, people come to the stadium in small groups and they become loosely connected because they're sitting to each other. They can see each other. And then when they become united by a shared purpose, you see this incredible 
coordinated activity, you know, an orchestra without a conductor. And it happens all the time. And it's the most amazing thing. We don't think anything of it. Uh, so, but this this shorthand, small groups loosely connected, united by a shared purpose, I think is also helpful because it tells us what leaders should do. If you want to lead a movement, you need to empower small groups to connect with each other and inspire them with the shared purpose. And that's what really good movement leaders do. They empower through connection and inspire with purpose. You make clear that there are certain things that are that are unique or not unique, but that are present in all the examples of effective transformational changes that you use in your book. And, you know, you talk about how how important values are mm -hmm. and how the values can help maintain the transformation through different leadership, you know, or change of leadership and such. And when it's really, if it's not a share, if, if you don't have the values driving the effort, that it's not going to be sustainable. Yeah. I mean, values are the difference between make the difference between a movement and a mob. Right. I, I mean, Values imply constraints. When Martin Luther King, when he, you know, his movement, nonviolence, that says, I am going to constrain myself in this way. And that's what makes people take you seriously. If you say, I just want change and I'm not going to constrain myself in any way. I just want everybody else to act how I want, how, how I want them to. It's, it's really a lot harder to take you seriously. And the cascade can very easily spin out of control. And we've seen that. And we've seen, for instance, Occupy, which has failed for many reasons. But one of them was that every time they were on TV, what pe the images people saw were of sna these snarling, nasty people. I mean, these weren't, if you saw these people, I mean, would you want to invite them into your living room? I mean, did, would you, would you want to now at the orange revolution, people brought their kids and their grandkids. There were people every, from every walk of life, but especially people brought their young kids because they wanted them to see it. Would you say that about Occupy? No. <laughs> and I'm not don't mean to pick on on Occupy, but a lot of these, you know, a lot of these things. So that's first and foremost, you need to wear your guardrails. How are you going to constrain yourself? That's the first reason values are important. The other reason values are important is the way you bring people in is through shared values. People like to focus on differentiating values or what they believe that's different because that's what makes them passionate. But if you want to bring people in, you need to focus on shared values. And that's what you always need to lead with. I wrote down just some quotes from, from your book that I thought were really good. And one of the ones is that successful movements do not overpower, they attract. Right. And so yeah. many of so many of the 
the noises we hear are 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 just that they're they're trying to overpower and and, and power is a huge issue versus compelling reasons to join the movement. And what happens when you overpower somebody? You don't make a difference. <laughs> you're going to get pushback. Yeah. It's not going to, I mean, you're not going to survive victory. You only survive victory through shared values. I mean, you work in, in poverty. Um, you can go talk about injustice and stuff like this, but the best way to start, look, I think everybody shares the value. People should be able to be safe in their neighborhoods, to raise happy and healthy families, and to have some semblance of decency and happiness in their lives. Yeah, but we've built systems that don't always support that for everyone. That's true, but that's not where you start. Yeah. Right? You know, not everybody believes the same things I believe or you believe or any of us believe about systems and how things are. But I think everybody can can agree that people at least should have a shot at a decent, happy life and good, strong communities. Yeah, for sure. And then, but so often people don't lead with that. They don't lead with what, they don't lead with the common ground. And that's, that's what, that's how you get people shouting each, at each other and talking past each other. So talk about the key points that I know you walked us through at Amarillo College training. The keystone change. I mean, what is a keystone change? Keystone change is a, so first you need to identify, we say a grievance, which is what you don't like, which is, that's how every change effort starts. There's something somebody doesn't like or a bunch of things somebody, people don't like. And, and you want them to change. But you can't get stuck there. And uh, there's another issue with Occupy, that you need to actually be able to define a vision of tomorrow. If you could snap your fingers, if somebody made you queen for a day, they gave you a magic wand, you could just wave it and snap your fingers and everything, and, and whatever you wanted to change would change. What would that look like? If you can't answer that basic question, you really have problems. And that vision, by the way, should not have a metric attached to it. So with Martin Luther King, it was, with the civil rights movement, it was a beloved community. That was the vision. Um, the voting rights was a keystone change. It was a concrete and tangible goal that involves multiple stakeholders and paves the way for future change. And you talk about as you build those networks and, and support groups and such, you talk about both your spectrum of allies and your pillars of support. And as I was reading that, you know, mm -hmm. and learning from you and stuff, I'm like, okay, here's through Panel 2020, the work we did, you know, those were our pillars of support and, you know, these organizations and institutions. And then, you know, who were our allies? And you're right. There's a group that's never going to join you. So how do you work on the ones who would? Because when we first started, we didn't start with poverty. We started with the issue of educational attainment being an economic issue for our community. And and it and it was and still is 
but people listened. And then when they understood that poverty was the biggest barrier to that, they could get on board helping if they were of the mindset that previously didn't really care about that. So it, it really helped pull over some of those, you know, reluctant allies or whatever you would have, whatever you called them in your graph. I can't remember. But passive allies. Passive allies. Passive allies. Passive allies are people who believe in it, but they're not actively working to make it happen. Yeah. Um, and, and also people who are neutral, they might not be aware of it, but even some passive opponents sometimes can be helpful. And the active opponents can be useful in their own way. Because if we can, if we can get the active opponents to be the snarling crowds, they can send people our way. <laughs> True. And that's, that's the, that's, what that's a whole idea of a, of a dilemma action um but back to spectrum of allies and pillars of support both of those are tools the basic principle is you create change by mobilizing people to influence institutions and quite often change efforts fail because they focus on one to the exclusion of the other occupy was pure mobilization they didn't want to have anything to do with institutions how are you going to make change if you you're not you can't affect institutions? Same thing, the Gezi Park protests in, in Turkey. They actually went to them and said, okay, we want to negotiate with you. There was nobody to negotiate with. <laughs> so they, not surprising, no change happened. But the, the opposite is also true. If you think about the common core effort in education, where they really had their institutional ducks in a row, but they forgot to win any support for it. And then they were very much vulnerable to a, a mobilization. So you need both those things. So Spectra of Allies is really about your targets for mobilization. And the way you bring people into the Spectra of Allies is focusing on those shared values. And then you can mobilize those people to influence the pillars of support, which are those institutions that can bring about change you you know and this is what an issue stakeholder analysis runs into i mean if you look at education you have all sorts of different stakeholders on one hand you have parents and teachers and students uh you know and you also have teachers unions and you have schools and school boards and local governments um those are all stakeholders but you mobilize one to influence the other. You don't mobilize a school board to influence parents, teachers. And, and as, as a longtime school board member, I, you know, I'm like, well, uh, I tried, but <laughs> but but we work yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. You know, what I mean, yeah. that's that's why working together for me is always how you made the biggest difference. And and you talk about inst, you know focusing on institutions. Part of what but, we try to do. Yeah, let's. Let's talk about yeah. that for a second, though. But you as a school board member, if you're going to push a policy, you want to see it has some popular support. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's why mobilization is effective. Yeah. It's 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 a way to show, hey, people really care about this. Yeah. Yeah. Ab oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just me pushing it out or us pushing it out. That gets nowhere fast or it blows up in your face or your community's face. You, you talk about uh, how nobody creates transformational change alone, and, and I think we've kind of gone over that some. But one thing, and I think this is your friend Sergio quote, a quote from him, 
Victory inevitably leads to the tedious boredom of governance. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, mean, yeah. That's, that's... I think that's me describing him. That doesn't sound like <laughs> Oh, him. maybe so. Maybe. But what he did say, and I think it's it's probably in the same paragraph, he said essentially that the goal of every revolution should be to be should be to be become ordinary and mundane. Yes, it is. If you're successful, it should be difficult to explain what was won because the previous order seems so uh, impossible. That's fascinating. Wow, I could I could talk about this forever, but <laughs> and, and you know it, so I'm sure you could. But but um, are there other things you think our listeners need to know about uh, in this kind of work? Um, I'll put links and stuff in the in the show notes for folks to find your book, your website, your um, and and the organization you mentioned from your friend, as well as anything else you want me to put in there. Um, but I just, you know, you've got such a varied background, but you've pulled things from so many different life experiences or examples and melded it together. You know, building the case of of. How do you create trans- and a lot of research uh, and a lot I of mean, research? I've researched, researched that book for 15 years. Oh, wow. It was a heavy it was a heavy lift. Um, I think the the most important thing to remember is that. Change is always built on common ground. And when we say things like common ground and shared values, people immediately jump to compromise but you never have to compromise and you shouldn't compromise compromise really is a a dirty word if you look at people like gandhi or mandela they were completely uncompromising but they focused on shared values and they brought other people in and i think we we tend to assume that empathy is some sort of altruism or what it's it it means absolution if i can internalize another's point of view that somehow i'm giving something up of my own none of that is true empathy is not a compromise and empathy if you learn to wield it properly can be a weapon Wow, that's probably a good line to close on. Greg, thank you so much. I am uh, excited to get this one out, and I'll send you links when I get it done. Thank you, and I know we'll continue to stay in touch, So, or I hope we do. And I appreciate you being willing to uh, hop on here and talk about change. Thanks so much for having me, Annette. It's, it's been a great conversation. Thank you, and thank you for listening to Annette on Education. <laughs>